College Decision Day, which is May 1st every year, uh, is a time where families get to decide where their student is going. They tell their college or university, hey, I want to be at your campus this fall. And they submit a deposit to secure their space. But it's a really exciting time for students, for their families, for their actual high schools. You'll, you'll see lots of really cute videos and everything as people make that decision and, and make it public. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers the economics of higher education for The Post. And she's noticed the vibe has changed lately. The kind of exuberance and excitement that I think you'd normally experience around a decision day has been tempered quite a bit by the pandemic. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martin Powers. It's Thursday, April 28th. Today, as College Decision Day approaches for students across the country, we look at why enrollment is down and why that matters. Plus, later in the show, whales already on the brink of extinction could face a new threat from a surprising source, wind turbines. College Decision Day is usually this super exciting moment. Education reporter Danielle Douglas-Gabriel spoke to our editor Alexis Diao about why this year, for many people, it's not so much. Danielle, you've been writing about how the last few years, College Decision Day is a little different. People are not enrolling so much. Can you tell me about that? Enrollment has been pretty tepid in some parts of the countries and certainly with certain types of schools. Community colleges have seen a pretty significant decline in enrollment. So have regional publics. Those are not the flagship ones, schools, but definitely like all of the kind of of secondary public institutions that really do the heavy lifting when it comes to educating folks in this country. They're not seeing as strong of enrollment as they were prior to the pandemic. And there are a couple of things happening there. One, the job market is really strong right now. So a lot of low-income and some middle-income students are lured by what are really higher entry-level wages for a lot of jobs in this country right now. So that's kind of delaying their decision as to whether to pursue post-secondary education. And then also, you know, the pandemic had really hurt a lot of people's financial prospects. As a result, some students had to make the decision to go to work in order to support their family, or their families could no longer afford to help them cover the cost of school. And what's the significance of of all of this, the drop in enrollment rates? So you really have to think about the long-term implications. While, yes, there are great jobs right now that offer great pay, your lifetime earnings, right, is really what college is, is, is kind of good at increasing. So the average college grad over the course of their career could make over a million dollars. That is a significant difference compared to a high school grad. So what we're talking about here is an economic impact over the course of of decades, of loss earnings potential, of not having the same level of of an educated workforce as well as an educated citizenry. 
that we we previously had in the last generation. And that's that's concerning. And we're not just talking about four-year schools. We're also talking about community colleges where they train folks to be welders, to be electricians, to do all the sorts of jobs that we need in order to have a functioning society. So there's quite a lot at stake here. And in the immediate, I mean, what does this drop in enrollment mean for higher education? It has, you know, really put a lot of pressure on certain segments of a higher education. Let's be clear, the super selective schools, they're doing just fine. Enrollment is humming along. They're still seeing a lot of demand, especially from upper income families who never question the value of college, never question about whether or not they could afford it. Even if they can't, they'll find a way. What we're seeing here is a pretty significant decline in students who are, come from low-income households. And that's that's a really sad and disturbing trend because for at least the last five or so years, we were seeing an increase in enrollment in that in the, those populations. And to see this level of erosion uh, in enrollment for them in particular is really concerning to folks in higher ed because what it means is that we're not really furthering equity here. And what we'll, we'll probably do by uh, seeing this, this drop-off is only the wealthiest people will continue to be able to build wealth uh, through their education and others will be left out, much like they were in previous generations. I want to talk about student loans and loan forgiveness. What's the deal with them? And do we expect them to continue after the payment pause uh, expires? So at the moment, the, the White House is has signaled and has said explicitly that they are contemplating whether to use executive action to forgive some portion of student loans. There is a little bit of uncertainty as to whether the president has the authority to do it unilaterally. But even if he did, the president has only said he feels comfortable with up to $10,000 per borrower. Now, that amount would certainly help the people who are struggling the most because most folks who default on their loans have less than $10,000 in debt. Oftentimes, they have that little bit of, of, of debt because they dropped out of school. Now, the folks who are probably the loudest about debt cancellation owe a whole lot more money. And for them, $10,000 would probably barely make a dent in what they owe. So there is, of course, a movement to cancel it all. But the issue here is, okay, so then what? That only would address the outstanding amount. People are going to keep borrowing People don't have the resources to afford college. So how do we fix the system to ensure that everybody doesn't have to rely on debt financing to get an education? And those conversations are far more complicated because the attempts that the administration have made thus far have not been successful. The free community college, right? That was a part of the Build Back Better agenda. Democrats could not coalesce around that idea. And the moderate Dems kind of voted voted it down, right? And that would have been a way to address some of the cost issue up front. Some of the more bold plans that we've heard about of raising uh, interest on student loans and just purely making an entitlement program without the government really making money, those those ideas haven't gone anywhere either. I will say the one thing that I, I find very hopeful is that a lot of states have taken it upon themselves to try to figure out this cost issue. And so we have statewide tuition-free programs, especially community colleges, in maybe about 30-some-odd states, 33 states now. And that movement is only going to continue because, as I mentioned, there is a lot of demand right now. 
because they have jobs and they don't have people to fill them. So I do think on the cost front, we'll see more kind of local efforts to address that, but the federal efforts have fallen flat. And unless you have both of those things working, where you're addressing the cost on the, on the front end as well as the back end, then you're going to continue to have a broken system. And that's what we have right now. You know, this is something that you and our personal finance columnist, Michelle Singletary, actually spoke about on Twitter spaces this week. You know, tips for families and students, you know, how to go to school debt-free. Tell us a little bit about that and some of the takeaways from your conversation. So Michelle is very much no debt, no matter what. And I respect that. And I certainly think that if you can, that it should be your starting point when you're having conversations with your family about paying for college, staying within a budget. Because yes, it is great to go to a prestigious school, but the beauty of the higher education system in this country is that it's really diverse. There are a lot of great schools, not all of which are, you know, the names that uh, everyone is familiar with. Not all of them are Ivies and all of that, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to get a great education. And that also doesn't mean that you're not going to get an opportunity to advance your career. So I would always advise families to do a couple of things. First, look at what you've already saved, um, preferably, hopefully, in a 529 plan. Then look at what kind of financial aid package is the school offering? What percentage is loans? What percentage is actual scholarships? What are the terms of those scholarships? Do you have to maintain a certain grade point average over the course of your college career to hold on to that money? Is the school front-loading the money, meaning that you get the majority of it freshman year, but the actual amount that you're receiving sophomore, junior, and senior year goes down any? Also take into consideration that tuition will likely go up. On average, tuition increases about 2 to 3% every year. So factor that in as you're thinking about the all-in cost. Also think about room and board. Think about transportation. Think about meal plans. All these little costs that start to add up and really affect your ability to afford a place. One of the things I feel like is pretty underutilized are installment plans. I've spoken to really savvy families where they have saved X amount of dollars and they're using it through their 529, but rather than spend down that account all at once, they'll spend a small portion and then the remaining balance on the the tuition bill for the semester, they'll pay in installment plans. And, you know, just like (laughs) the installment plans you can get with when you're buying furniture or any of those other things, it breaks down the costs over the duration of the semester. So you may pay like $400 every month or something like that, which makes it a little bit more palatable for families as they are using some of their income to pay down the, the bill and not borrowing against their future earnings. So there are a lot of ways to do this. It doesn't mean that you have to borrow. But if you do have to borrow, and there's nothing wrong with having to borrow for your college education, because a lot of people just don't have the money. It's exceedingly expensive. But be strategic about it, right? So one one of the things I think is the smartest advice I'd ever heard was, if you know you are going to be, you want to be a teacher, go on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website and see what teachers make in their first year on average. Let that be kind of your guide stick that you can use to say, I am not going to borrow more than this amount of money for my undergraduate career to be a teacher. Because it is most likely, if you think in terms of 
pay raises and all those other things, you could probably pay down that amount within 10 years. Borrowing more than that starts to eat into the benefits of your degree because you are constantly paying towards this amount rather than being able to save for those really transformational moments in life that help you create wealth, like purchasing a home, like receiving for your retirement. So these are things to consider as you're making this decision. But I mean, is there a general, money aside, finances aside, is there kind of a general vibe shift happening where like 18-year-olds are like, look, I spent a good at least half of my high school career in a pandemic and I don't want to go to college right now. I want to take a gap year. I want to take a minute. It's been a lot. You know, I really don't doubt that that's happening. And there are some students I've spoken with who that is their situation. They just need a mental break, Right. Because it's a lot. The transition from high school to college can be overwhelming in so many ways. But more often than not, the students I'm talking to that aren't going and that that we're really seeing showing up in the data are low-income students who are making these choices because of finances, right? And I don't doubt that the mental health aspect of it, the exhaustion aspect of it, play a role in their decisions. But money is is the bottom line for a lot of these students because they simply don't have it. They're afraid of borrowing for it, but they still value college. They just don't think that it's for them at this moment. So it's really interesting to see how colleges and universities will engage these populations to help them understand that, hey, if you get in, we can figure out ways to try to help you. Danielle, College Decision Day is this Sunday. What are you thinking about? Honestly, I am thinking about folks like my little cousin who, you know, he is, and I imagine he's like a lot of kids right now. He is really torn between his dream school, which he got into, and the more practical choice, which is a state school, which he also got into. And certainly the state school is far more affordable. It would require little to no debt at all. And he would be able to sail through, graduate, and not have to really worry about this burden of student loans. But he worked so hard and got into that dream school. And I know his mom is just like, look, I don't want to deny my child these opportunities because we can't necessarily afford to pay out of pocket for this more expensive school. But... She's also struggling with the decision that I don't want to have my child have to work multiple jobs to pay down debt. I don't want him to feel that he is beholden to some job because he has student loans and he can't take the risks and try the different things because of this financial kind of noose around his neck. And that's, I imagine for many families, those are really difficult decisions. It's a really hard conversation. But I do hope, as I've told my cousin, to be practical here. There are a lot of people who have to end up going to graduate school for their career. And to spend a whole lot of money on undergrad when you still have a graduate education just is not the best way to use your money and to build wealth. And that's just the bottom line. Danielle, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers the economics of higher education for The Post. She spoke to our editor, Alexis Diao. Julie Deppenbrock produced this story. After the break, we head to the high seas in search of the elusive right whale. Did you get a good look? Oh, whale's on! We'll be right back.
Back in March, I went up to Massachusetts, uh, Cape Cod, and joined a group of uh, New England aquarium researchers who are studying the North Atlantic right whale and going out of the water to try to find some of them. Dino Grandoni is an environmental reporter for The Post, and he's been reporting on the North Atlantic right whale, one of the most endangered marine mammals in the world. There are only about 300 left, and they are continuing to die at a startling high rate. And um, unless things change, they're going to go extinct. The right whale is said to have earned its nickname because it was, quote, the right whale to hunt. The oil from the blubber was used to light cities. Their baleen, the structure in their mouths used to filter food, was used to make petticoats and corsets. These huge creatures, which can be as long as a school bus, were hunted almost to extinction before it was outlawed in the 1930s. But today, right whales face new threats. They're being struck by our boats. They're being entangled in our fishing gear. And then there's climate change. Climate change is driving their prey into unprotected waters. But there's also something pretty counterintuitive going on here. As the Biden administration looks for alternative forms of energy, they're encouraging building wind turbines off of the coast of Cape Cod, near Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. And those wind turbines could be a problem for the whales. Those are going to be placed in right whale habitat. And that poses yet another stress to this animal that really can't take very much more. And um, it's a tension that uh, we're seeing across the world now, really, uh, between trying to address climate change on the one hand while still protecting wildlife habitat on the other hand. For those of you who haven't been with us before, uh, life rafts are on the roof of the wheelhouse all the way up top. Life jackets are in the large white locker behind the wheelhouse. In case of an emergency, please follow the direction of the captain and the crew. The aquarium had chartered this boat for two weeks, and this was one of the few days during that period um, where it was not too windy to actually go out. We're talking about winter in New England. It's blustery most of the time, cold most of the time. While you're on the top deck here, most of the ice is, is, uh, is off. Just be careful walking around. Uh, we got glazed pretty bad down yeah. here, so we've been picking away for two days. <laughs> Before the trip, the uh, scientists with the aquarium had told me over and over again, there are no guarantees that we would find a whale. So right around now, we're passing through one of the areas that has had concentrations in the past. One of the scientists on the boat was Philip Hamilton. I mean, we could see him anywhere, but this, uh, this sort of southern area is where we have the most, I have the most hope. So... Starting at sunrise, uh, these whale scientists stationed themselves around the boat, some uh, at the uh, bow, one at the stern, and they're just looking out uh, through sunglasses or binoculars. One of the things the scientists look for is water being shot out of their blowholes. So we're looking for either um, the blow, you know, a white puff above the water, so often contrast against the dark water. Um, <clears throat> right whales have a V-shaped blow, which you don't always see, but if you see a V, then you know for sure it's a right whale. If they're going deep to um, feed, they'll lift their tail, so you see the shiny black tail, and sometimes in the distance it'll be um, a reflecting, like the, you'll catch a glint 
as the sun reflects off the water on the black whale. Whale biologists have to have the like the patience of a monk and the um, sprinting ability of a you know an athlete because you go from like doing absolutely nothing and like this, and then all of a sudden a lot of action. <laughs>but they do have help. They have a plane overhead also looking for the whales and also telling them where they should go. Most of our understanding of whale uh, use of this area is based on planes, solely based on planes. They have a better chance of finding them because they're covering a lot larger area. When these scientists find whales, first and foremost, they want to figure out who they are. So they try to identify them um, and see how many of them there are, count them up. Um, and then they'll observe their behavior, see what they're up to, what they're doing. Are they eating? Are they playing? And once they've figured out which whales they're looking at, they might want to um, take some samples. One sort of sample they can take is poop. Yeah, people kind of laugh always, but it's, it is just amazing what you can get from a little piece of poop. As, as far as, you know, is the whale pregnant? Is it healthy? Has it been feeding well? There's a lot of good information. So. And one of the way they can collect samples is through a biopsy, uh, basically taking a bit of their skin or blubber and analyzing that as well. And they do that with a crossbow, which I found so surprising. They have a specialized arrow with a flotation device, as well as this hollow um, metal tube with barbs on the inside that they fire at these animals and it pokes them, falls out, containing a bit of that bit of whale, bit of that skin, and uh, they reel it back in or go fetch it. And then they have a sample from the whale. And they, they've they done this, you know, hundreds of times and collected DNA and have built the family lineage of, of these animals. There's only 300 or so of them. So they, they have mapped it out pretty well. I think mid-morning, um, we got word that the plane had found a quote-unquote SAG, which is a socially active group of whales. And uh, we uh, we changed course and uh, went to find those whales. Amy Warren was a scientist coordinating the trip that day. It's a small sag, so it's better than an individual. I'm going to try and get more info from the plane, like how many and how active. All right. But something. That's exciting. How far away is it? 15 miles away. So it'll take about an hour and a half. I'll take it. Yep. yep. Good eye. Did you get a good look? Oh, whale's eye. A lot happens once uh, they they spot a, a group of whales. Um, they kind of race on deck and with binoculars and clipboards and try to record and figure out which whales these are. Um, kind of calling out the different characteristics of and features of the whales that they're seeing and um, checking that against a catalog of the whales they have on a computer on the boat. And of course, their own memories. They're very good at just figuring out which whales are which, uh, just on their own. And um, you know, pretty quickly, they were able to figure out two of the three whales. Kelsey Howe was a scientist also on the boat that day. Uh, marlin is the slightly bigger one. It has a scar kind of like, kind of starting kind of the back of its head and then going across its back. Then there's Sawtooth, um, a 15-year-old male that um, also has a distinctive scar on its tail, a kind of sawtooth-shaped uh, jagged edge to it that, you know, made it pretty easy to identify. So that's Sawtooth on the top. That's Sawtooth? Yep. So somebody's underneath him. 
Uh, then there was the third whale, which had the number 3629. Um, not every whale gets a name, and this one doesn't have one. This third whale they they recognized needed to be darted, and um, they gave it some thought. They debated it a little bit, and uh, ultimately they had to decide against it. And that's because it was too windy on the boat by that time. It's a little ironic. I don't know if iron, ironic's the right word, but it was a little ironic that um, you know this wind that is going to bring turbines to this area, uh, you know, inhibited them from uh, collecting this this sample and understanding these whales a little bit better. At least one of them. Some people might ask, why care about this animal at all? And um, you know, many will answer, like, nature has a value inherent in and of itself. That's why we need to understand uh, these animals. But, you know, kind of more to the point with the North Atlantic right whale, um, I think there's a big desire to understand how our efforts to address climate change may inadvertently affect the very things we're trying to protect. You know, a lot of effort is being put into figuring out how to build and operate these offshore turbines in a way that's going to still protect marine life. But it's a challenge and it's one that we kind of need we need to address. Dino Grandoni is an environmental reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Robin Amer and edited by Juliet Alperin. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>